This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, this is Megan from Stories of Win, and I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Silvana Valcheva, who's a junior group leader at the University of Cologne. And I'm happy to say also a friend. Um, Silvana and I briefly overlapped um, in the lab of Dr. Robert Fremke at the NYU School of Medicine as she was just finishing up her postdoc and I was starting mine. So really looking forward to talking to Silvana about this transition from her postdoc and starting her new lab at the University of Cologne. Um, and also getting to hear just a little bit more about her scientific journey, because I know some, but I think not not all. So <laughs> thank you so much, Silvana, for, for talking to me. Yeah. Nice to catch up again. <laughs> yeah, it's great to see you. <laughs> Good times back in New York. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I really have to say that this, um, the, the, the whole stories of when concept, it's kind of like having this lineup of rock stars on a concert. And I feel like my small garage band just got invited to join the show. <laughs> so I feel absolutely honored to be here. Oh, uh, well, there, I, I wanted to talk to you and in, include you in the lineup for, for many reasons, one of which being that I see you as a rock star in that lineup as well. So, um, but to, to get started, um, we always like to, to start off these interviews by hearing a little bit more about your, what I like to call your neuroscience origin story, um, which I actually don't know for you. So I've been really looking forward to asking, you know, like how and when did you first become interested in science generally and in the brain in particular? Yeah, I, the funny thing is that, you know, I've been into neuroscience for the last 10 years or even more, but I still consider myself just as physiologist. Um, and I'll argue later that actually for as long as I remember, I never considered the brain being superior to the gut or the <laughs> liver or any other organ, but for some reason I ended up studying the brain, but I'll talk about that more later um, in details. I discovered neuroscience very late. Um, I was in undergrad when I discovered neuroscience. So, but the whole story of me being passionate about um, the natural world was since I was a kid. Um, I need to say that I actually grew up in the 90s in the post-communist Bulgaria. And this was a very difficult transition period between communism and democracy. So it was yeah. a very stressful time for the country. Um, we didn't really have such things as extracurricular scientific activities or any science hands-on experience at school. I think we had like one old broken microscope and I'm not even sure there was a teacher who knew how to use it. Uh, um, and definitely we didn't have any TV programs for kids, science focus or any TV at all for the first couple oh, wow. of years while I was growing up. So um, my passion about really about the natural world, about biology, living beings, sparkled while I was playing around the building. You can imagine this communist city. Uh, <laughs> and we had very little green patches around. <laughs> so the only 
the only living beings I could spot were these bugs that hide in the cracks of the pavement. And I was just compulsively observing them and making notes about when they breathe and what they eat and where they go and all of it. (laughs) I really imagined myself as a field scientist. Um, I think that was the only science I could imagine because I literally could not imagine what a lab looks like. And later, you know, I saw it in like science fiction movies. <laughs> yeah, I see. So you were in your science classes and it was more just like textbooks, like rote memories, but not actually like hands-on science. No, it was not. Um, so for a long time, when I was in high school, actually, um, I was, you know, not, not, not a little kid anymore. I got very passionate about pharmacology and chemistry. So my mom is a pharmacist. So we always had this... Uh, f- yeah, chemistry, pharmacology, books lying around at home. And yeah, and I, for some reason, were reading, was reading those. Um, I, I'm not even sure I was understanding all the formulas. <laughs> Just for fun? Wow. <laughs> I really wanted to know which drug does what on which receptor. And I thought, so that's how I, how I discovered this neuropsychopharmacology. But this, again, in my mind, was not neuroscience. And so when I was in high school, we had... Uh, we had to choose kind of um, uh, a different track dependent on where do you want to go in university. So you could choose, let's say, literature or history. And I chose the so-called science track, which was biology and chemistry focused. But that was exclusively for people who want to apply for med school. So I actually got kind of like a yeah, high school training, you know, uh, for passing the exam to med school. Um, but I never wanted to do medicine. That's so so interesting that even then at that point, it was like, well, if you like science, like that's medicine, being a doctor is the one track for you (laughs) that (laughs) there wasn't any exposure to like a research career or alternate. No, there was no, mm -hmm, there was no funding for research in Bulgaria at that point. Um, there was no such a thing as like a fundamental research. Um, Mm. if you graduate in biology, let's say you obviously can become a lecturer in the university, but you don't have a, you don't have a lab. I see. Yeah. Um, so I still wanted to do research (laughs) and I was looking for ways uh, to basically leave the country and go abroad where I can study science and, you know, actually doing do research later. But again, in my mind, there was not such a thing as grad school or, <laughs> or, or, or faculty. Like that, was, yeah. that was all very, very far and blurry. I just wanted to gain some hands-on experience in science. Um, and so um, I decided... Um, I decided that I really wanted to go to this one university, which is the, uh, Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris. It's actually their top one science uh, university. But for that, I needed to have a certificate, a diploma in French. You know, you need to be proficient in French in order to take the classes. Uh-huh. So I took kind of two years um, in my high school doing all these French courses and stuff. So I got the certificate and that's how I I could go in France. And I actually did my undergrad and and master's and grad school there. Okay. That was the goal. Yeah. So you identified that somewhat early. Did you specifically want to go to Paris, to France? Or it was more like you were looking for good research universities or something? Yeah, I was looking for good research universities. Um, 
obviously at that age, um, and I was 18 years old, you do not want to be in a very small town, or at least that was my mindset. <laughs> uh, so I also, I also wanted to be in a very international setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to meet people who come from all over the world. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, just, yeah, be exposed to as much as possible. So Paris was a very good spot for that. But the Pierre Marie Curie University University is extremely good in, um, it actually is extremely good at neuroscience, but I didn't know that at the time. Mm. So I applied in order to do uh, pharmacology there. And I stuck with that decision up until very, very late. Um, So my bachelor, I have to say that in France, you have three years bachelor, two years of master's, and then grad school. So you have to have a master's degree in order to apply for grad school. So my bachelor was in life sciences, Mm, but I continued to be very focused on pharmacology and chemistry. Mm -hmm. And we had some, we had a little bit of neuroscience, but imagine that was mainly neuroanatomy. Mm. Coupled with some pathology, and I was really not convinced. <laughs> For me, everything sounded like some alchemy because if one area of the brain is missing, then something behavior changes. But right. that was, it was not concrete for me. You know, I was used mm. to to look at the equations. Like I wanted to know what's the substrate of all of that. I don't claim that right now I know, but maybe I got used to the <laughs> to the lingo of neuroscience. But at the time, I was not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, that's like funny to me that as a neuroscientist that even just like things that we take as so fundamental, like these lesion studies or whatever, that young Silvana was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> what are what's yeah. the equation that <laughs> that can yeah. define this relationship? But it's good to have that. I think that Definitely. skepticism is 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 always good. <laughs> but okay, so then you were so you first started taking neuroanatomy. So then how did you get more into physiology then? From, from well, we had this one class about the nurse equation. Ah. <laughs> then I decided this is it. There is some, some reasoning in all of that. You know, the <laughs> actual ions moving across the membrane. And this isn't thinking. just alchemy, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and they, they provoke spikes. Um, but really, I think the tipping point was when I learned about synaptic plasticity, and this is literally what I've been doing throughout my entire career up until now. Uh, This was absolutely fascinating for me that a certain pattern of activity in the brain can trigger, can basically leave different memory traces at synaptic level. Um, I find this absolutely fascinating. And especially when we learned about HEB and how only the timing of the spikes uh, can, can, can just encode different plasticity rules. I think, yeah, I, I thought that was it. <laughs> that was it. That was all. <laughs> that actually makes sense coming from like having come from an interest in more pharmacology and like finding particular receptor. I can see how that then like plasticity and these like actions at the synapse that would like capture you. <laughs> but that's so cool. So then, um, so that was still in um, your undergraduate then? So then how did you decide to go about doing, I guess, in the case in in France, doing your master's and then your Mm. PhD? Well, I still haven't decided. I was excited about (laughs) it, but I still apply. So you have to apply um, at the end of your uh, bachelor about master's programs. 
And so I still applied into pharmacology. I applied to in silico drug design. Mm. I applied to all of drug related, um, chemistry related things that you can imagine. And I also applied for the master's in physiology in our university. And you can actually, from that master of physiology, you can specialize in neuroscience later. Why I applied to that one? Because it was actually the program with the least acceptance rate. <laughs> and, and it was concerned. It was considered very cool to be accepted there. But I thought I had, I had very low chances to get in. <laughs> but I, st- I still thought it was fun to apply just to see. And actually, yeah. there were the ones who, who answered. Um, and they were like, yeah, you're accepted in your science. Do you want to come in? And I said, hmm. Okay, maybe it's a sign. <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> that's so funny. So it was more like, oh, that's the sort of being a little like competitive or the, the cool route, but not really like thinking that was a, a real possibility. It's a bad reason. <laughs> I say it straight away. It's a bad reason. You should not do that. Um, but at the time, you know, it, everything was like a game in my mind. I was in, mm. in this foreign country, just trying things out. Um, and I thought, well, you know, neuroscience could offer me this cool concept about synaptic plasticity. Maybe there's something else to explore there. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> well, it's maybe the maybe you would change the reasoning now, but it's it's led you on a cool path. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, so so you did get into that program, and then you um, stay there for your master. So this was still at the Pierre and, and Marie Curie University, right? Exactly. Typically, people move between universities, uh, you know, from bachelor's to master's. I stayed because of that one program. It Mm -hmm. happened to be uh, the best neuroscience program in Paris at the time. Yeah. 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 Very cool. So could you tell us a little, maybe like briefly, kind of what you worked on in your PhD um, and then how that led into kind of your interests moving forward and moving on into your postdoc? Yeah, um, so during my PhD, I was at the lab of Laurent Venance at Collège de France. So he is working on basal ganglia. Specifically at the time, he was more focused on the striatum. He's doing also a lot of um, animal models of Parkinson's, uh, but he's also very passionate about spike timing dependent plasticity Um, and a little bit of astrocytes. So when I had the interview with him, so I need to actually say that in France, you first interview with different labs, then you pick up a mentor and a specific project. You do kind of like a short rotation of multiple months there, and then you apply for grad school with that one project for that one lab. Oh, okay. It's very tricky because it's a, you know, one shot. Yeah. It, it's really <laughs> Yeah, so it's not a great system. I actually hope that they're going to incorporate the, more of the UK-US system of rotations. Yeah. Um, but at the time, that was the way it was done. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll tell you about later how I decided to apply for grad school because I was told multiple times that um, actually I have very low chances to get in and it's not worth applying for grad school and it's actually better for me to find an industry job right after my master's instead of losing my time trying to get into grad school and I was who was saying that (laughs) yeah so I had multiple um 
bad experiences with tech experiences with just unsupportive mentors, uh, bad projects. And when I say bad projects, it's just projects which are not supervised properly. And yeah, it's like a dead end project. Um, And also I was told that by university professors because um, the way they were rating your performance was based on those um, small internships in all those tech experiences. And they were very much rating the science that comes out of that rather than the effort. So if you're on a bad project, you obviously have very little data on your, on your poster at the end of the semester, and then you get a bad grade. So I had bad grades, very little experience um, and very little mentoring. Um, And I was seen as a bad student actually. And, you know, there was no hope for me to get into grad school. Um, so what I did at the time, but was that I think that was my lowest point ever. My self-esteem was absolutely crushed. I was frustrated, intimidated, scared. I didn't want to go back to Bulgaria because I was seeing that as the end of mm. my scientific future. Um, yeah, I was alone yeah. in this foreign country. I had no salary. Um, because after, you know, after your master's, you basically either have to work or kind of go back. Um, so what I did was while I was in the lab of one of my failed scientific endeavors, (laughs) (laughs) my project was really not working at all. Um, I found an extremely cool postdoc who actually uh, agreed to teach me how to patch in culture. Mm. So she she taught me how to patch cultured neurons, uh, but we had only one rig. And then when she was leaving in the evening, I was getting the rig after working the oh. entire day project, which was not yielding any results. Then I'll get on the rig and start patching overnight because I believed that I might be, I might look like a bad student, but if I can do like one technique really well, that can be my pickup line <laughs> and to perspective grad school supervisors that look, my grades are bad, but I can patch. And I thought that yeah. would solve it. So I go to interviews um, and it was a successful strategy for <laughs> For some supervisor, they're like, oh, that's yeah. great. You can so you can join the lab and, you know, maybe you can get a result quicker. But then I meet with Laurent. <laughs> and I very proudly say, oh, sorry, I need to actually um, just mention that I was looking for grad school labs where um, I can patch in slices and look at synaptic plasticity phenomena. Okay. I did not care further about the concept. All I wanted to do was <laughs> patch and look at plasticity. Because <laughs> so far you had still been just patching in cultured cells, right? Or... Yeah, I'm just patching in culture and actually looking at transmission and vesicular release. Mm. But I want to get to the plasticity. Yeah. Um, I want the STDP, right? And then <laughs> I got to home. Uh, we have a super cool conversation. Uh, it was really inspiring. It was absolutely great. We spent way more time than, you know, me speaking with the rest of the of the mentors. Yeah. And then at one point I say, listen, my CV is not great, but I can patch. And then he says, I don't care. Oh. And then I, I didn't <laughs> know what to say next because I thought, oh, no, that- we had such a good time, but now it seems like the door is closed in front of my face. 
but then <laughs> but then he 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 actually said i don't care about your skills i care about your motivation mm. and i really believe that yeah that's what a good mentor should say at least yeah. at the obviously at the grad school uh, level where yeah. people have different experiences they have different skill sets um it's not when you're you know it's very different when you're hiring a postdoc sure but um i felt i felt amazing yeah. that he gave me a chance and actually within a couple of months in his lab i had so much data um the project was going great and uh, there was only one downside of this offer uh-huh. was that there were other labs who were offering me a fully funded grad school. So in France, grad school is from three to four years. Uh-huh. And you should either find an external funding source. So you fund it yourself with a grant or the lab can provide that for you. Laurent did not have any money at the time, not for grad students. So there were other labs who told me we can provide a fully funded grad school, like PhD. Uh, Laurent said, you can join the lab, but you bring money. (laughs) So So you did end up having multiple offers then. So your strategy did work of, you know, learning to batch and, 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 you know, getting into graduate school, but you chose, you wanted to work with Laurent. It sounds like you just had a good connection with him and was really interested in his work and, he seemed like yeah, he was always looking into the future. You know, he was always looking into the potential of people. And he knew that if you're if you're passionate about what you're doing and if you're if you're curious, your learning curve is going to be very steep. So he knows that you're going to compensate quite quick about skills that you didn't have when you started. I think I, I, I had an amazing time during my mm. grad school really. That's awesome. (laughs) But so you said, so you didn't have funding there. So he said you had to get your own grant. So was that a challenge or, (laughs) or it just worked out? It sounds like at least the initial of your PhD was, you were up and running like really quickly and successfully. It was a challenge because I think I took, honestly, I took several years to recover from the fact that so many people were telling me that I should not be in grad school. And I felt, it's not even an imposter. I think I felt kind of, um, yeah, I don't deserve to be there or kind of, oh, maybe I'm shooting for the stars, but I just need to you know, stay and just do my, my own things and don't bother. I don't know. And then, so the, the way you get funding uh, in France, at least at the time, was um, you get a government funding from the Ministry of Higher Education and Research. And so... You have this interview where you walk in a room, there are 15 people, whatever, and then you talk about your project, future research, and what you did during this uh, small internship. And in the room, there were so many of those people who actually were telling me before that I should not apply to grad school. Wow. I was, I was really, it was awful. Um, well, obviously... Obviously, it worked, uh, yeah. but I think that was the lowest point of my life. I was so stressed. Yeah, that's not, I mean, I'm curious, like, I, do you think, were you just, like, really unlucky in, like, kind of your early experiences and, like, your tech position? Or do you think, I mean, I don't know what the breakdown was in France at the time, like, 
how many women or men were pursuing these degrees. I mean, do you feel like you were getting unfair treatment with, I mean, clearly you were because clearly you were highly motivated, incredibly capable and brilliant, but you know, were other people also getting turned down like this or, or what do you, where was that coming from? Do you think? I think it was coming. Yeah. Mixed from bad luck, but also misinformation. Yeah. I think, I think at the time, I was only looking at the scientific project or the techniques that the lab was offering. And I, I was not asking the lab alumni about the atmosphere in the lab. Mm. I, th- I think I was not absolutely not used to um, create meaningful connections and use those connections for information. And obviously there was not such a thing as Twitter. <laughs> Yeah. Um, So I was very science driven and science focused. And obviously that immediately changed. Um, Once you had a good. Yeah. I mean, it just highlights once again, the importance of a good. I was very (laughs) mentor. Extremely naive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so hard. I can only imagine how like being told for so many years and by so many people that you can't, how it takes time to, you know, get that off your chest and like actually believe um in yourself again i'm sorry that all those people said that but that's very hard for me to imagine now seeing you and all your success and as the like queen postdoc in the from lab and now starting your own lab but i would love you to write me a recommendation later <laughs> next time i apply for a grad school <laughs> I would ask recommendations from you. No, but I really believe that I'm I'm not the only one. Obviously, I, I know people uh, who had similar experiences. Yeah. And I, I'm afraid that currently they are people in a similar situation, right? Yeah. So the moral of the story here is rather... Um, sometimes I, I think... From since that moment, I listened less and less to advices that are given to me, and I'm more prone to first try something and then yeah. figure it out if it works or not by myself, than to you know take the advice and probably never try something. So it's a completely yeah. different story when you apply to a grad school, more multiple grad schools, and you don't get in. That's that. This is one story. You did what you could, and then you figure it out. Um, but it's completely other story to not apply out of, I don't know, fear or yeah. low self-esteem or because someone else told you. Um, so in that situation, I really think it pays off to listen to your gut instincts. Yeah. And here I'll say that the gut is superior to the brain in this exact situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, everyone's opinion is just like their opinion, you know, just because they're not you doesn't necessarily mean they're more right than you um, in their opinion of you. So and and yeah, I, I love that, though, the even though you had spent all this time and probably um, sacrificed a lot of sleep learning to patch. I love that. Um, Laurent was just like, I, I don't care. It's like your motive. I don't know. I've, I've heard that from like my advisors too, who I've been so incredibly grateful for. And I think that's such a, um, that's such a sign of a great mentor to be I, like, I totally- you may, it doesn't matter so much what you know. And as you said, you know, there are differences from starting grad school or postdoc, but seeing more of the potential in people as opposed to like, 
Yeah, but that's awesome. So I do want to get into your your postdoc research and stuff, but maybe you can briefly sort of the maybe what quick summary of kind of what you found in your in um, your PhD research um, once you were in Lauren's lab and really got up and running. You already knew how to patch. Um, you were looking at um, spike timing dependent plasticity in in the striatum, right? So what did, what did you find? How did that um, lead you into then Rob from Key's lab at, as a postdoc at NYU? So yeah, I was I was looking in Laurent's lab how astrocytes control experience, uh, sorry, activity dependent plasticity in striatum. So, and I was specifically looking at how glutamate uptake by astrocytes mm control plasticity in uh, at the cortical striatal synapse. So the interesting thing about striatum is that um, astrocytes have very high density of glutamate transporters. So they kind of suck the glutamate right away after it's being released from the presynaptic site, mm-hmm. uh, making these synapses, for lack of a better word, very silent. So, mm-hmm. so they're very sensitive to this spike timing because uh, because of that uh, environment that the astrocytes are providing. So w- what I found is that um, if you block this transporter of glutamate, so the synapse will be flooded with glutamate, the t- the spike timing of the plasticity doesn't matter anymore. So it, the synapse kind of starts to code more into a frequency-dependent mode. And so the STDP is lost. And instead, there are other erroneous like spurious plasticities that are established, which we can imagine that they potentially encode for some um, yeah, memory traces, which are not supposed to be there, right? Yeah. Um, and the other way around, if we overexpress these transporters, so the glutamate reuptake is extremely efficient, um, this actually you cannot establish STDP at all. Uh, so no matter how the synaptic neuron is firing, there is nothing encoded from the postsynaptic part. I see. And, so that, and you're talking about the transporter specifically in the astrocyte. So um, this is kind of a fine, basically there's this kind of fine tuning or this kind of optimal level of glutamate transporters in these astrocytes. So just kind of the right amount of sucking away <laughs> all this extra glutamate that allows... Exactly. Um, so the impulse kind of like a filter um, where certain certain types of plasticities are prioritized over others, um, and that can be super interesting for um, you know different brain regions actually where the astrocytic coverage or the density of transporters is very variable. So different mm. synapses across the brain, there are certain plasticities which are prioritized over others and synapses um, operate more into a frequency or the spine dependent manner. Um, and that might explain, uh, yeah, how astrocyte might actually regulate that. Very cool. So then, um, so that sounds super interesting. And we're gonna come back to that because I know that that's gonna come back into sort of what you're thinking moving forward with your lab. But so then what what led you to, um, to Rob from Key's lab at, at NYU. I know maybe a little bit of this story, but. <laughs> um, it's a mix of me continuing to be very naive and absolutely wanting to patch in vivo. So I continue to be <laughs> passionate about patching. <laughs> so from culture, I got to slice and then I want to patch in vivo. But now um, I wanted to join Rob's lab 
because uh, he was looking at experience-dependent plasticity in vivo combined with patch. Um, and because I was already doing activity-dependent plasticity, meaning that depending on the presynaptic firing of the neurons, there are different plasticity paradigms established. Well, I wanted to bring that in vivo, actually, and look at how experience, which can be uh, some, some learning paradigm or sensory experience or uh, life experience <laughs> as yeah. during development, how, how that will encode different forms of plasticity in the brain which then actually will lead to some um, behavior changes or, or sensory perception. So I wanted to bring this one level further and incorporate it in vivo. Um, the funny thing here is that I actually only applied to Rob's lab for a postdoc. And I always tell everyone to not do that. Students should <laughs> Interview multiple labs. They need to. <laughs> they need to have choices. Um, I'm very prone to have strong opinions and <laughs> very focused on one specific thing, which can be beneficial in some situations and very detrimental in others. Yeah. So I. I remember still. I. I, I told Laurent, uh, my grad school supervisor. I told him, I will interview with Rob. And I'll either get into the Framke lab for a postdoc or I will not do a postdoc and go to industry. And then Luon said, this is the worst decision I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I basically contacted Rob and explained all of that. Um, he, I, I also need to say that actually Rob has, um, he did also his grad school in spike time independent plasticity. So we actually really also bonded around that. Yeah. Um, and so, well, Rob said, you can come, but I don't have a funding. And then the story repeats itself over again. <laughs> uh, and I said, yeah, sure, I can probably find money. Well, at the time, actually, I didn't have, so all the uh, timelines have passed because that was, I think that was, yeah, that was in spring, sometime in spring. And a lot of the grant applications are beginning of the year, at least the, the French ones. Mm-hmm. Because at the time I was eligible only for French grants to go uh, do my postdoc abroad. Um, but there was one grant where the application was still open and it was due in a day. <gasps> and so, <laughs> so we have this chat with Rob over Skype, not even Zoom. We chat on Skype. <laughs> then he tells me more or less what he's interested in. Um, he mentions hypothalamus. He mentions oxytocin neurons. He mentions maternal behavior. And I do, okay, patching vivo, subcortical, yeah, perfect. I didn't want to patch in cortex, maternal behavior. Okay, that's some sort of experience. That type of, yeah. <laughs> down, and then I say, okay, okay, good. I'll send you the grant, whatever, next day. Um, and yeah, and then I write that grant. And then it got funded. But in a is... day? You actually wrote it in a day? I wrote it in a day with a lot of coffee, which I do not recommend <laughs> to anyone. And yes. Yes, this is not how I write it. <laughs> this one in a lifetime chance, I think. Um, yeah, so that grant funded my first year of postdoc. And that's how I went to Rob's lab. Wow. <laughs> that's an epic grant story, although that gives me like... <laughs> 
<laughs> makes me sweat to think about trying to write a grant in a day, but that's amazing that it was successful. And it does seem like it was kind of, I mean, even though, as you said, you maybe wouldn't recommend other people take that same strategy of one lab or bust. It does seem like it was a very good fit for what you were interested in and um, wanted to do moving forward. But so, so then that is basically what you started looking at, right? Um, so looking yeah. at maternal plasticity and oxytocin neurons. So maybe you could um, tell, I'm obviously pretty familiar with this work, but for those listening, um, could you talk a little bit about that project and, and what you found? Because I think it's so cool. And I think um, audience will be very interested to hear. <laughs> talk. So my, my, initial, my initial postdoc project was to, um, was to look at how oxytocin neurons um, in maternal mice, but also in virgin mice, uh, process uh, auditory information from mouse pups. So this is, are they activated by vocalizations of mouse pup? Uh, if yes, how, and how that changes when virgin mice become maternal. The thing is, um, I later changed kind of a little bit the project and I stopped look, looking at virgin mice because um, I actually discovered that there's so many things we need to look at moms first before. So we need to look at how these vocalizations are encoded first into the maternal brain. So then we can go one step back and look at how um, that changes with maternal experience. <laughs> Just briefly um, for, for those listening, so you know, most people have probably heard of oxytocin, at least in the context of, you know, lactation and um, giving birth and such, but it's also it's been found from Rob from Keys Lab as well as others that oxytocin can actually um, engage act as sort of a neuromodulator promoting plasticity in even sensory cortical areas, um, and that changes with maternal experience. So for instance, in, in mother mice, as opposed to virgin or sexually inexperienced female mice, um, there's a greater action of oxytocin that seems to change how the auditory cortex actually responds to um, cries emitted by young mouse pups. And that actually changes, that contributes to the maternal behavior exhibited by those female mice. So such that mother mice will respond to their crying pups by going and retrieving them back to the nest, but the virgin mice do not always do that. And so a question then is, is how then are, is oxytocin actually released um, in response to something about maternal experience or hearing these pup cries, for instance, just as a little bit of backdrop for those listening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I guess oxytocin is the most um, known about its role in nursing. And then for the long time, actually, the oxytocin circuits in the hypothalamus have been considered as purely nursing circuits, right? Because Oxytocin is released uh, during nursing, and then it promotes the milk letdown. Um, and at the time, the only sensory inputs to those oxytocin neurons in the hypothalamus were described to be coming from the spinal cord, and these, these are conveying somatosensory mm -hmm. uh, sensation from the nipples or also uh, from the uterus, actually, uh, during um, parturition. Um, but I started to dig into what other sensory cues 
and specifically what how auditory cues might be encoded there. So actually, I found that there is this uh, auditory pathway coming from uh, inferior colliculus to thalamus to hypothalamus. Um, and what plasticity mechanisms are actually established at this thalamus to hypothalamus synapse to actually uh, promote the integration of pop calls into maternal uh, uh, oxytocin neurons in order for them to release oxytocin centrally and how that modulates uh, maternal behavior. Yes. And for those, um, and so I didn't actually know this until like I started hearing about your work and stuff, but that in even humans um, and mothers have reported like actually lactating sometimes in response to just from hearing a baby crying or something. And so for instance, like relating sort of the humans to your work, the idea is you've actually found sort of a pathway by which auditory information actually um, you know, activates and engages plasticity of the neurons that release oxytocin themselves. And so that could be, you know, one mechanism by which you get um, lactation in response to cries, but then also um, central release of oxytocin into the brain um, to have other effects as well related to maternal behavior. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oxytocin cells are more um, multisensory that, than we thought before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, um, breastfeeding women can experience spontaneous milk letdown when they hear theirs or others' uh, babies cry. Um, but also I recently discovered that there is, um, uh, there is a breast pump which actually have so-called cry button where you can record your own baby's cry and play it while you pump so you actually so actually that increases the milk out it's amazing wow uh, <laughs> other other reports um talking with breastfeeding women is that very often they look at their cell phone with pictures of their babies uh while they use the pump actually because apparently baby faces also promote wow. uh, milk let down um we still don't know if there is we, you know, we still don't know what are the exact uh, mechanisms of um, how visual inputs activate yeah. those. But it's extremely curious. Yeah, but it just highlights, yeah, how these different sensory cues can actually engage this oxytocin. It's sort of a, completing the loop between the sensory input to kind of behavioral output um, in the context yeah. of maternal. And, and I think really the most interesting thing here and really very important is that um before the so-called yeah okay cut 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 <laughs> <laughs> um the activation of oxytocin cells uh during nursing uh and their release of oxytocin all of this um uh, it's has been called the so-called milk ejection reflex right there is a there is the word reflex in all of that. But now when we start learning that those neurons actually can integrate either other sensory cues, kind of points out that this is um, a way more of a reflex loop. That is, this is an actual hub for active integration of sensory mm. information. And that all of these uh, probably different sensory pathways, they're also coupled to different plasticity mechanisms to allow the activation of those oxytocin neurons. So it's not, it's not reflexive. Mm. 
Yeah, no, that's a super more complex than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, more of this integrative, active process. Um, so cool. So then, um, so, so that was a really exciting project and, and series of findings from your postdoc. And then so as now you're at this kind of exciting transition point where you, you recently left um, Rob's labs, who finished up your postdoc and are, are just about to start your, your new lab at the University of Cologne. Um, so what are what are sorts of questions are you hoping to pursue in your new lab? Um, and how are maybe what's what are you kind of carrying over from your postdoc and or PhD? And, and what are you hoping to kind of um, branch out um, to do as well? Yeah, I'm continuing the um maternal hypothalamus research direction that I established in the Fromke lab, um, looking at the neural circuits involved in maternal physiology. And specifically at the moment, my lab is interesting, is interested in on the pathways and, as I said, different plasticity mechanisms which control the activation of oxytocin cells, oxytocin release in different brain areas. And broadly different aspects of maternal physiology. So we're actually looking at which specific circuits gate the recognition of infant cues in new mothers. And we also look at what plasticity phenomena actually regulate um, different postpartum adaptations. For example, uh, nursing, which as we know, does not come spontaneously, and it's not yeah. a reflex yeah. probably. Um, also changes in maternal metabolism, such as like food and water intake. Um, and we are, we're studying this on a synaptic uh, circuit and behavior level. Um, I'm also integrating my love of astrocytes from <laughs> grad school, obviously, um, because there is something very curious happening with uh, hypothalamus astrocytes is that um, when female animals transition to motherhood, actually astrocytes shrink, um, which, uh, which then leads to a lot of different um, synaptic phenomena. For example, there is more of a less glutamate uptake, more of an intrasynaptic crosstalk. Um, and we really think that this might help different plasticities to be established to actually enable new mothers um, to detect salient cues from infants. So kind of that we impose a high pass filter of only relevant synaptic inputs can reach those neurons and release oxytocin uh, in the maternal brain. And that's not the case in virgins. That's so, that's such a cool like merging of you know like in your PhD you found at least in slice um, ex vivo how you know astrocytes could really regulate um, synaptic plasticity in that sense but now it's it, this is like very exciting to actually look at how that might be happening in vivo in the context of you know maternal behavior and nursing and, and things of that sort very cool. So you're just starting your lab, um, all sorts of exciting new questions to pursue. How is, how is this transition going? I feel like I wanted to ask you because you're, you're literally at kind of precipice of opening your lab. I feel like we've talked to quite a few people who are sort of at the end of their postdoc and quite a few people who are maybe a year or a couple into, your lab, into their lab. Um, but you're kind of literally right at this, at this transition point. So, you know, how has that transition been, been 
going so far? Um, what have been some of the challenges so far? And what are what's been and what are you like really looking forward to? I'm really looking forward to finally start interviewing people. (laughs) (laughs) Recruiting TLM. Recruiting, yes. I will be starting posting job offers next week. Um, There were a lot of administrative uh, steps, obviously, and and those administrative steps actually vary tremendously from one country to another. Mm. So it's different in France, US, and in Germany. So this... It's quite of adaptation there. Um, well, another challenge is, is obviously when you see this empty lab space yeah. and, and you know you have to fill it with equipment and you have the list of equipment, but it's still, it still can be very intimidating. Yeah. Um, but it's really exciting. Uh, when, you, when you place your first quote, <laughs> order... <laughs> <laughs> you feel like the date's worth it. Um, uh, and I think at, at, at the very beginning, it's important when you're not very deep into grad school committees and other stuff, and you're not super busy to actually apply for as much as grant, as much grants as possible, because a mm. lot of those early investigator grants have, um, have some deadlines within the first couple of years of you opening a lab. So that's the advice uh, I've been given um, from, from fellows who just start their labs um, and to take the time to interview people. So I, I think I talked to quite a lot of people and you know the biggest fear of a young investigator is that you're gonna stay alone in your lab for multiple months and no one will join. This is not true. Applications from students come quicker than you expect. um, And you actually need to take the time and pick your people because you want to invest in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another advice I've been given, which obviously I haven't started to interview, but um, I hope I will will be patient enough. time <laughs> and actually recruit the right people um, and then obviously you have some research um, direction in mind but all of this will be shaped depending on the people you hire yeah so i think having flexibility in that is crucial because mm. people come with different passions and different skill sets um, and obviously the dynamics is very different uh, between a mentor and a mentee between each yeah. pair of mentor and mentor. Sure, yeah. Um, and I think you have to have this um, uh, this flexibility within obviously the range of your uh, broad interests. Sure. Um, and another thing that it's seemingly very important for when you start is to be hands-on mm-hmm. at first. Doesn't mean to not give freedom to the people, but to actually make sure that the experiments are performed uh, correctly, that the data analysis uh, is needed, and, and, yeah, and to go through all the analysis by yourself at first. Mm. Um, and I've been told that people who, you know, young investigators that are more likely to succeed are those that actually behave like postdocs at first. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, um, just to be stay close to the data, and that's that's literally the advice that Rob gave me. He said, mm. "If I need 
tell you one thing is to stay close to the data for the first couple of years. Hmm. Again, without that doesn't mean any micromanaging or yeah, yeah, it's an important distinction, but yeah, yeah, oh, that's um, exactly and 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 yeah, and obviously it's extremely important to get along with your colleagues and to you know kind of make a name for yourself because you're new, you're just hired, you you get along with them obviously because they they hired you yeah <laughs> i think these long term connections are extremely important uh, and then i think it's important for that to start early on uh, and you can should obviously set boundaries for example not everyone are welcome to come and use your equipment all the time but i think it's extremely important to share mm. from the beginning to make yourself available for Let's say when someone uh, sends a student to your lab to be trained on something or sends you a manuscript for correction and early on to start applying for grants with your colleagues um, to start applying for symposia with them and all of this. Um, Yeah, I think that there is a critical window where you need to start all of that. Yeah. Oh, well, well, that's exciting. And get, you said you officially start May 1st or officially open May 1st. <laughs> yes. For the moment, I'm a guest. I'm a guest <laughs> university. <laughs> On my back is written guest. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, not for too much longer. And so, really? and yeah, for anyone listening, Sultana will be hiring <laughs> imminently by, certainly by the time this is released. So. <laughs> I will be very loud. (laughs) (laughs) You won't miss it. Thanks for that. (laughs) Of course. Um, Awesome. Well, we should probably start at least somewhat wrapping up. Um, We already talked a little bit about, um, I think I told you in advance, we'd like to talk about, you know, some challenges along the way. Um, We already talked a little bit about, you know, I think what you said was maybe the hardest time in your career so far with us or an undergraduate and master's time and um, imposter syndrome and, 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 and that whatnot being told you couldn't do it when, when clearly you could, um, I want to give you the opportunity if there are any other like challenges you wanted to talk about at other stages, um, of your career and wanted to share them. Absolutely. But if you feel like we've covered that topic, then we can also move on. <laughs> yeah, I actually definitely want to share, um, my experience from my first year of postdoc, yeah. Because I feel up until now, I was saying, I was telling about all those grants that I got, but I absolutely want to talk about the grants I did not get. And there were Mm. many. (laughs) (laughs) When I started in Rob's lab um, for the first year of postdoc, I applied to six grants. (laughs) And I want to say that that's actually not a lot because international um, postdocs in the US, they can apply only for private funding. And we're not eligible for NIH or NSF. So I applied to six private foundations and I did not get any of the grants. Um, and my my French grant was paying only my first year of postdoc. So I was mm. <laughs> 12 months, I was living in fear that at oh. the end of these 12 months, Rob will kick me out. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think I think it would have been enough just me talking to Rob straight about that problem. But I was, I think I was too intimidated and probably yeah. too stressed. Um, so, so that was due mainly to the lack of preliminary data mm-hmm. and to the fact that I was proposing a project that a lot of people did not believe in. They they were saying oxytocin cells respond to nursing. What else do you want to find there? Um, and yeah, so my advice for everyone who are not getting grants as postdocs is just, just focus on your research. Mm. Honestly, get some preliminary data and, and prove them wrong because at the end of this one year, um, I had enough stuff. Um, and, and so my, my second year of postdoc actually got two grants at the same time. Um, so I can understand how, yeah, I I was at my lowest probably at that time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's really great advice. It's certainly advice, you know, you were giving me that advice informally too. Um, and I know at least for me as a starting postdoc, that was incredibly helpful to hear, um, you know, cause it is kind of a weird time where you're coming out of your PhD, um, and, you know, maybe probably by the end of your PhD, you felt like really successful, you you had things down, and then suddenly you're starting a new postdoc, and then you're kind of faced with um, more rejection all over again. And so it was, it, certainly for me, it was really helpful to hear that someone has, you know, dealt with rejection and then like overcame that or went on to be incredibly successful. And so just to keep in mind that, you know, any single rejection or, or multiple rejections isn't a sign that like, you're not going to make it. <laughs> so I think yeah. that was certainly really useful for me to hear. And I think a lot of um, people listening, especially is starting their postdoc or even, I mean, certainly relevant for any career stage too, starting grad school, starting, starting PI ship. I think it's, it's, it's useful advice to hear. Yeah, grant rejection is probably something that happens. Sorry, I mean, like 90% of the grants get rejected, right? In your yeah. life, or even more. So I think it's a good moment to get used to rejection. <laughs> a necessary cold shower experience. And that, that only keeps you cold shower. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's great about, though, to like not get too discouraged. Just focus on the science and then, it, and then the the money will come. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for, for sharing all that and sharing your journey and talking about your exciting science. Um, and to wrap up, um, we like to end on kind of a fun note of more of a get to know you uh, kind of question. I have the privilege of already knowing you a little bit. Um, so I may already know the answer to this, but for those who don't already, uh, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what do you like to do for fun or just to unwind or relax? <laughs> yeah. I, if I was not a neuroscientist slash physiologist, <laughs> I, would be, I would be a circus acrobat. And honestly, <laughs> There's there still those days where I'm wondering, did I make the right choice going into academia instead of the circus? Um, yeah. Were you, were you seriously considering the circus at some point? No, because I started too late. You have oh. to start maybe when you're like four years old. And yeah, no, I, 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 I missed the crucial. 
Plasticity window. Uh You were too busy watching the the bugs and the little like spots. Exactly. I think so. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, as as, as a kid, I was doing uh, gymnastics. But then um, for the last 15 years, I've been doing um, aerial acrobatics, which is everything hanging from the very high ceiling. (laughs) So yeah, different variations of... My favorite is Trapeze um, and Lyra. This is imagine a hula hoop, but mm. which hangs from the from the ceiling. And and recently I got passionate about aerial straps. And yeah, so I've been doing that since forever. And I actually always have this analogy: um, science and acrobatics. You know, when you're really high up, you're multiple meters from the ground. Often you hang with one hand upside down and you really do not have the option to fall. This is not an option. So if you're (laughs) tired, if you're tired or for some reason you don't think you're going to make it into your sequence, you just change the shape you're going to make. But you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't go to the ground. The show goes on. So you just figure it out, but you continue to dance. And so, Mm That analogy actually very often emerges when I'm in a yeah a low point. <laughs> yeah, about career or or just about experiments, right? We get frustrated in the lab every day. I always tell myself you can change strategy, but you don't give up. The show must go on. <laughs> um, and so I always imagine myself hanging from the trapeze. <laughs> Um, and I think for me, especially knowing that I do not have a choice of failure is very helpful. Mm. Um, I understand for some people it might be rather stressful, but um, yeah, that that analogy actually very much keeps me going. No, um, I really like that. The, the show must go on. But yeah, it ties <laughs> into like what you were saying about even starting your new lab and, you know, having your idea for what you want to do, but also allowing some flexibility. So, you know, that yeah, to be flexible or change strategies, anything to keep the show going on <laughs> and not falling too. No, don't uh, fall. Breaking your leg or something. Yeah, <laughs> one way to do something and to achieve something. Uh, and for different people, different things work. So I, I think it's, yeah, you need to just keep exploring. Yeah. Have you found... Um, a new place in Germany to to do your aerial acrobatics. I did, I did. I even, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I did. There, there are multiple places, and the cool thing is that I work in Cologne, but I live in Dusseldorf, so I have actually access to two different cities. Mm. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that was the first <laughs> thing I checked about. Oh yeah. <laughs> Before I visited the lab, I actually enrolled into the circus school. <laughs> no, that's that's important to be able to make sure you can keep doing the things outside the lab that keep you sane for when you're in the lab. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, you should stay away from burnout. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Silvana. It's always fun thank to you. talk to you. It was great to catch up and hear more about your journey. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything. And and yeah, hope you had as much fun as I did. <laughs> it's so much fun. Thanks for inviting me.